Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. Once again, good morning. Welcome. So good to have you here in the house this morning. So good to see you face to face. And of course, as Dave said just a moment ago, it's so great to have you at home online with us as well. We extend a very special greeting to you. And when the time is right, we look forward to seeing you as well. But how about the people in the room right now? Thank you. God bless you for the privilege of being able to worship the Lord together in his house. We say it often, there's nothing like his presence. And we mean that very sincerely. And I, for one, am so thankful for the presence of the Lord when we gather together. And I'm looking forward to some great things. Now, I really need you to know that I'm extremely proud of you. And I appreciate all of you, every one of you. I mean, I genuinely want to commend you for your tenacity and your perseverance. I mean, come on, let's face it, it's been a battle. And over the last several months, we've kind of been in survival mode, doing our best to navigate this pandemic, maintain our faith, and keep our eyes on God in light of all of the darkness and all of the negatives, the challenging times that we're living in. But now that the lockdown is over and the stay-at-home restrictions have been lifted, my prayer before the Lord, my sincere and earnest prayer, is what's next, God? What do you want for the church? Post-coronavirus, what's the priority? What's the one thing, what's the main thing that you want the church to focus in on? How many know that's a really good prayer? We need to know where we go from here, where the Spirit of the Lord is leading us. And in response to those kinds of questions over the past couple of weeks, the Lord has led us to the Old Testament book of Esther. And there in Esther, there's a powerful verse of Scripture. We're going to get to that verse in just a moment. It's found in Esther chapter 4. But before we do that, I want to take you back in time and talk about an event that happened right around 30 years ago. And the event that I'm referring to now is the Gulf War. Now, in his book, It Doesn't Take a Hero, General Norman Schwarzkopf, remember that guy? A guy you didn't want to mess with. He details the success of the Gulf War, or what was called Operation Desert Storm. Operation Desert Storm began with the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. And when we began to hear reports of all the inhumane and the detestable atrocities that were taking place in Kuwait, the United States got involved. The United States always gets involved. We entered the war in January of 1991. And at that time, with U.S. involvement, an allied coalition was formulated consisting of 34 different countries. The United States deployed about 500,000 soldiers to the region, and the rest of the coalition, another quarter million. And with the combined efforts of the coalition, the war, the Gulf War, Operation Desert Storm, 
was over in less than two months. Not two years, not two decades, 42 days to be exact. And according to General Schwarzkopf, the main reason that the war ended so quickly with very little loss of life on the American side was because of the United States special weapon called the F-117 Nighthawk. I believe we have a picture of it. That's it right there, the F-117. It was a stealth fighter jet. And during the Gulf War, the F-117 was the first plane in the air. And within minutes, before the enemy even had a chance to know what hit them, the F-117 was already taking out the most vital and strategic targets. And believe it or not, throughout the entire Gulf War, with the countless flight missions, all of the enemy sorties and bombings, the infamous Scud missile attacks, through all of that, not a single F-117 was, was shot down or even fired upon. Not one F-117 Nighthawk even was remotely damaged during that time. Anyone care to guess why? Hey, you couldn't see it. It was stealth. You couldn't detect it. The F-117 appeared to be invisible. And because of its unique shape and design and what was called RAM, radar absorbent material, the F-117 was able to fly through the radar screen without exposure. The technology of the F-117 was amazing. It broke the basic radar energy laws. And its unique aerodynamic shape magically reflected the radar signal and it flew at will without detection. That's why it was called stealth. Say that. At home. Stealth. <laughs> stealth means secret and surreptitious. Covert and concealed. Hidden or undercover. One more time. Secret and surreptitious. Covert and concealed. Hidden or undercover. And I really hate to drop this unexpected bomb on you right now, pun intended. But this is precisely the way many believers live their lives. Stealth and surreptitiously. Beneath the cover of radar. And I'm talking about good people. Great people. With an undercover faith. You know, just a while back, I had the opportunity to talk with a guy that I had worked with years and years ago. Hadn't seen him in years, maybe 30 years. And during the course of our conversation, he learned that I was now a pastor. Freaked him out. <laughs> Said no way, just didn't make the connection whatsoever. And it was during that conversation, during our discussion, that I learned when we worked together all those years ago, he was a Christian. He had been saved since he was a young man. Went to church, served the Lord, loved God with all of his heart. Did some really good things for the kingdom of God. I never knew that. No one that we worked with knew that. Because he kept his Christianity to himself. He had an undercover faith. Always beneath the radar. 
And friends, this is nothing new. Because Jesus encountered this exact same, time of same kind of believer during his earthly ministry. And without even giving it much thought, two names immediately come to mind. They'll come to your mind too. There was Nicodemus and there was Joseph of Arimathea. Now the Gospel of John tells us Nicodemus was a Pharisee. But not just any old Pharisee. He was a member of the ruling council. Reverend Nick, he was a big shot. And all the other religious leaders, all the Pharisees, all the scribes, they looked up to him. They admired him and respected him. And Nicodemus knew by revelation that Jesus was very special. He felt it in his heart. He could sense it when Jesus spoke. And yet, because he did not want to put his social status in jeopardy, he went to Jesus when? In secret, undercover, at night, when no one, was out, no one else was around. And Joseph of Arimathea, he was not much better. He too was a prominent religious leader. In fact, he had a very prestigious and distinguished seat on the coveted Sanhedrin. But just like Nicodemus, he kept his faith to himself. He didn't let anyone else know about it. When it came to Christianity, he was hidden there in the radar, on the radar screen. Now, we're going to circle back to Joseph of Arimathea and look at his life a little closer. But before we do, I'd like to read a couple of verses of Scripture from the book of Esther. Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. You guys with me? Mordecai, say that. I want you to remember Mordecai's name. It's pretty important. Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all of the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, I'm going to repeat that. For if you remain completely silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That last line once again, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now many of you know this passage, don't you? You've studied it over and over again. Some of you have memorized it. You loved it. You love it now. In fact, when I mentioned a few moments ago that we were going to look at a powerful little verse of Scripture found in the book of Esther, you knew exactly which verse I was referring to, that it was this one, that statement for such a time as this. But in order to fully grasp and understand the impact of what is being said here, you have to know the backstory. And for the benefit of those who are not aware of it, I'm going to ask you to give me just a few moments this morning to highlight the story for you. And in order to have you understand the proper setting, the story of Esther takes place during a time of great turmoil, a lot of confusion and controversy, because it happened after the nation of Israel had been carried away into captivity. And so here it goes. 
One day, the king of Persia, a guy by the name of King Xerxes, he decides to throw this huge celebration for all of his officials. And so he feeds them, and he takes good care of them. And pretty much after they're all intoxicated and feeling no pain, the king decides to parade his trophy wife in front of all of his guests so that they can admire her beauty. He calls for Queen Vashti to come. But she's a classy gal, and she refuses to come, which totally humiliates the king. And all of his advisors tell him, you've got to put her out. You've got to get rid of her. So he listens to what they said. He divorces her. He banishes her, which leaves him now with no queen. So a search is made for a new queen. And they did that by bringing together all of the single young women in the region, in the land. And among that group of women, there was a, a gal by the name of Hadassah. Hadassah was a Jewish gal. She was a relative of Mordecai. Remember Mordecai? I asked you to remember that name. Mordecai was in the service of the king. He was the Jew that was taken into captivity. He worked for the king. He was the cousin to Hadassah. Hadassah had another name. What was it? It was Esther. But Mordecai and Hadassah didn't want anyone to know that she was from Jewish origin, so she went by the stage name or the fictitious name of Esther. So whenever I use either one of those two names, Esther or Hadassah, moving forward, you'll know it's the same person. All right. The reason we have this book in the Bible is because the king favored Hadassah more than all the other women. And when the queen's selection process was complete, Esther, or Hadassah, was chosen. And she took Vashti's place, Queen Vashti's place. Now, right around that same time, there was a man by the name of Hamar. And Hamar, he was, uh, Haman, pardon me, Haman, and he was in the uh, royal court of the king, he was one of his royal officials, and Xerxes decides to promote Haman. And now Haman becomes the number one man, the top magistrate, second only to the king. And because of that honorable position, everyone else in the king's court, all of his subjects, all of the people that worked there, they bowed down in worship to Haman. Everybody except for Mordecai. Remember, Mordecai was Jewish. He didn't bow to anybody except for Jehovah God. So he refused to bow to Haman, which ticked Haman off. He became enraged. And he began to plot against Mordecai. In fact, his hate was so thick and so deep, he somehow convinced the king to eliminate all of the Jews when he found out that Mordecai was Jewish. And he got King Xerxes to sign a royal edict to seal it allowing for the extermination of all the Jews. That's how much he hated Mordecai. And so the king signed, that decree, signed a decree. All the Jews were about to be destroyed. And when Mordecai heard that dreadful news, immediately he went to his cousin, to Esther, and said, you have got to appeal before the king, and you have to get him to change his mind. Throw yourself in mercy at his feet and beg him to not destroy the Israelites. And that's when Esther reminded Mordecai of the law at that time and that a stunt like that could be extremely dangerous for her. 
And a passage of scripture that sheds a little light on this particular topic is found in Esther chapter 4 and verse 11. Here's what it says. All the king's officials, how many? And all the people of the royal provinces know that any man or any woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law. What was it? That he or she be put to death. So Esther basically said to Mordecai, you know, my own personal life is at stake here. Which prompted Mordecai to give the famous Esther 4.14 statement. Who knows, Hadassah, whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Well, in response to that challenge, Hadessa or Esther decides to reluctantly go before the king and ask for mercy. But the first thing she does is call a three-day fast. And she told Mordecai, I want you to get the entire Jewish community behind me and we're going to all pray and fast together. And following the three days of prayer and fasting, a very courageous Queen Esther went to the king and by the grace of God, he favored her. He did not call for her execution, but he spared her life and he allowed her to live. And she said to the king, King, the reason that I'm here is I want you and your top official Haman to come to dinner tonight because I want to just make a feast for you. I, I want to feed you. And after dinner, there's a special request that I have. I'm going to ask you, O king, for a favor. And the king says, that's fine. We'll be glad to come. And so they did. And they had dinner together, uh, Esther and the king and Haman. And following dinner, uh, the king said to his queen, what is it that you want from me? What is your special request? And still being a little bit nervous on the inside, Esther stalled for a little bit more time. And she says, what I'm going to ask you to do is come back tomorrow night. Can you do that, king? Could you come back for a second meal? He goes, hey, I can do this all week long. I love your cooking. I'll be glad to come back. i eating like a bachelor. Come on. Well, during the night, as it would be, that night before the king and Haman would come back for the second meal, Xerxes can't sleep. He has a restless night. He's tossing and turning all night. And so he finally calls for his attendant to bring his own personal journal and began to read his chronicles as king. And the attendant got to the part where a man by the name of Mordecai acknowledged an assassination plot against the king and he stopped it. And Xerxes says, wait a minute. What's in the notes? What did we do for Mordecai? And the, the attendant says, well, we really didn't do anything. We got busy. We had plans to do something. We never did it. Now the king says, wait a minute. We have got to reward Mordecai for his heroics. So he calls in Haman, his number one official. Remember, top guy, the guy that hates Mordecai. And the king says to Haman, Haman, what do you think we should do for the man that the king really delights in? And Haman, thinking that the king was talking about him, you know, doing something outrageous and extravagant for Haman, he says, I got an idea, king. What you should do for a man like that is to put him in a royal robe, put a crown on his head, a ring on his finger, and parade him through the city streets, acknowledging and proclaiming his greatness. The king says, that's a wonderful proposal. I love the idea, Haman. Go make it happen for Mordecai. 
which enraged Haman, as you can imagine. Well, the next day, or that night, they came together for dinner, second night in a row, following dinner, the king once again says to his bride, his queen, my dear, what is it that you want from me? What can I do for you? And that's when Esther came out of hiding. And Esther said, dear king, you don't know this, but I'm a Jewish woman. And by direct decree and edict, me and all of my people are about to be destroyed. And, O oh, king, what you need to know is that Haman, your top official, has deceived you. Because he hates my cousin Mordecai so much, he's the one who has gotten you to write out this decree. And the king was infuriated. And on the spot, he gave command for Haman to be killed on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And right then and there, the king, he gave his own personal ring to Mordecai. He pronounced that Mordecai would now take Haman's place as the number one guy in the entire land, the entire kingdom. And Haman was able to draft and write up a new decree that the king signed and sealed, which allowed the Israelites or the Jewish people to come together, to assemble, to meet, and to fight off all of their enemies, especially the hostile ones. And because of the courage of Queen Esther, because she was willing to take a risk, because she came out of hiding, the Jewish people were saved. And they enjoyed a tremendous time of deliverance, joy, and celebration. It was a great day for the people of God. During all that turmoil and all that trouble, they got victory. Now, just a moment ago, I said that Esther came out of hiding. And ironically, that's what Esther means to be hidden, to conceal or to hide. And Esther basically said to the king, Your Highness, I'm not Esther. That's my stage name. That's, that's my fictitious name. My God-given name is Hadessa. That's my birth name. And by the grace of God, Esther or Hadessa came to terms with the woman that God had created her to be, the woman that she really was. And right here, right now, God was tapping her on the shoulder at this particular time to overcome her fear, step out from the shadows, stand up and be counted. And as a result, she brought a great deliverance. How many know that's the plan that God has for each and every one of our lives? That's his strategy. That's his desire for the church, that we lead this nation and this world to a place of deliverance and spiritual revival. And right now, we should be happy. It's what God has called us to do. That's the reason the anointing is on the church. This is why God has prepared us for this hour, this time. Not when things are good. It's during the crisis, during the tough times. Now, earlier I told you we would circle back and talk a little bit about Joseph of Arimathea. Check this out, because some of you will remember it if you search way back, but maybe it didn't come to you right away. John chapter 19, verse 38. This is what it says about Joseph. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was what? He was a disciple of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but what? 
secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Joseph of Arimathea had a relationship with Jesus, connected to him, heard his message, watched him preach, saw the amazing miracles, and in his heart he knew that Jesus was different and he made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nicodemus, he just thought, well, Joseph took it to the next step and became a disciple, a follower. That's what the scripture says. Are you getting that? He was a disciple. He made commitment for Jesus. And yet, why does the scripture tell us that he became secret in his Christianity? What was the reason? Come on. Fear. He was afraid. He was afraid of the religious leaders. As a Christian disciple and a Christ follower, back then, just like today, there were some tough and sensitive issues at stake, and Joseph of Arimathea just did not want to deal with those issues. It wasn't like he was afraid of physical harm or even death. I mean, that wasn't happening then. No, his fear was the fear of man. He had a difficult time with criticism. He didn't want to be rejected. Joseph wanted to be accepted. He wanted to be approved of. He wanted to be liked. He didn't want to cause problems. He didn't want to become insensitive to other people. He didn't want there to always be some kind of a controversy. He just wanted to be able to get along with everyone. So he became a slave to his peers. And Joseph made the intentional, purposeful decision to become a covert Christian, a follower of Christ from a distance. Didn't talk about it, didn't share it with his associates, never went to a meeting where his neighbors were talking about Jesus. He kept it to himself. He had good insight. He was able to receive revelation from God. He was a good spiritual man. But he didn't talk much about his faith. Just kept it inside. And please understand, just like his contemporary Nicodemus, these were good men. We're not talking about guys who led some sinful double life. These were good guys. They loved their families. They served God. They worshiped the Lord. They honored him. Nothing to indicate that they were other, anything other than being authentic and real. But again, fear was the motivator. Fear of forfeiting his worldly influence. Joseph feared losing his popularity and his position. He was afraid they would no longer be socially accepted. He had a fear of what others might say or what they might think, and so he just kept his Christianity to himself. Scripture says he was his disciple but secretly. You know, something happened at the foot of the cross that changed all that for Joseph. Something took place in his heart, and it was very powerful when he watched the manner in which Jesus died. And now I really appreciate your, attendance, your attention leading up to this. Try to lock in right now, because this is where 
the reason why we did what we just did is to get to this. Something changed for Joseph of Arimathea when he watched the manner in which Jesus died. On the cross, Jesus never lashed out at anyone. He didn't point a finger in anger to the crowd. He didn't blame or belittle the religious leaders. He didn't turn to the Roman guards and say, you're killing an innocent man, and one day you mark my words, you're going to pay for this. Jesus never retaliated. He was never verbally abusive or agitated in any way. After that massive beating and all the physical punishment that Jesus took, he was still gentle and sensitive to the needs of the people around him. And he appealed to his father to forgive his enemies. He extended grace and mercy to the thief that was hanging on the cross next to him. And he was greatly concerned about his mother's traumatized and broken heart. His flesh was shredded with a whip. They pressed a crown of thorns into his brow. They drove heavy spikes into his hands and into his feet. He was physically abused beyond recognition. And the message didn't change. The message on the cross didn't change. The same message that Jesus preached during his earthly ministry was the message he preached as he hung there dying. The crisis didn't change him. The adversity, the tragedy, all the violence, all the, the ugliness that was taking place in the crowd never changed the message. It remained the same. And that spoke volumes to, Ar to Joseph of Arimathea because guess who had a front row seat to all of that? He did. A bird's eye view. He was there keeping a low profile in the beginning. But then when he saw that whole thing unfold right before his very eyes, he said I, to himself, I can no longer remain quiet. He could no longer contain himself. He was compelled to do something, to step out of the shadows. And following the death of Jesus, this well-liked and well-respected, admired and influential secret disciple of Jesus came out. And he went to Pilate. And he appealed and claimed the body of Jesus. And again, it was the Gospel of John that tells us that it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus that prepared Jesus' body for burial and laid him to rest. Joseph of Arimathea did that. Now, as we begin to prepare our hearts for communion, would you allow me to ask you a very sobering question? What's it going to take, friend? What's it going to take to draw you out? Out from the shadows. Out from a place of covert Christianity. What in the world is it going to take? You know, I have to be honest with you. And what has happened over the past couple of weeks 
all of the ugliness and violence in our nation on the heels of a worldwide deadly pandemic, it's rung my bell. It has broken me spiritually and has shaken me to the core. And this whole concept of life being so fragile, you know what the scripture says? It's like a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. It has never been more real to me in my whole life than these last few days. And I, for one, as I think back to the great expectation that we had at the start of this year, when we entered 2020, and Abdu, you said it so well on Wednesday, a chance to get 2020 vision, something that God had wanted for us this whole year. When I think about that enthusiasm that I have, I have determined that I am going to live out the rest of my days. I don't care how many they are as a bold and undeniable witness to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. An unwavering commitment to his message. Not to mine, to his. Not my opinion, not what I think is right, not my analysis, his. The message that he gave us through the Gospels and the same message he gave us on the cross. And the last time I checked, his message was still a gospel of grace. The good news of grace. Grace that has the power to change us. Grace that can reverse the dominance of sin, overcome the stronghold of fear, break the chain of addiction, initiate forgiveness, keep us in step with the Spirit, and the same grace that can transform us into the image and likeness of God, which is what the Spirit of God is after in our lives, each and every one of us. The anointing of the Lord is upon the church. The challenge for the church is to come out of hiding and to preach the good news of the gospel. Let's bow our heads. Father, we're asking that you would speak to us as only you can. Thank you for your presence in this place, in Father's house. We sang it earlier. This is your house, God. It's been hard to be away from you. We thank you, Lord, for all that we've learned. We thank you for all that we've experienced. And Lord, we make a commitment today to come out of the shadows, to stop keeping this powerful, life-changing gospel just to ourselves, but to make a fresh commitment, Lord, to live. To live. Scripture says it was on the night Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke the bread. He gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper it ended, Jesus took the cup, and again he gave thanks. 
He passed the cup to his disciples and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death till he comes. Friends, I've told you on countless occasions that it was just a few hours after Jesus made this proclamation, after he shared these words with his disciples, that he was arrested, falsely accused, and condemned to death on the cross. And he went to that cross. He died on that cross. And immediately following the death of Jesus on the cross, one of the Roman Praetorian guards, the soldier that was assigned to the execution task force, he made a beeline back to Pilate. Pilate was hanging out there at the fortress, waiting for the events of the day to unfold. And this soldier told Pilate, it's over. Jesus is dead. You see, Pilate had been waiting for that report, pacing back and forth, nervously, impatiently, uneasy, because of everything that was taking place. I mean, a riot was brewing. Any, anything was possible. And now that Jesus was dead and the crowd began to disperse, he could relax. He was relieved. And just about the time that he was closing up shop and he was about ready to head home, there was a knock on the door. And when Pilate opened the door, he was, he was shocked. He never expected to see that guy there. It was Joseph of Arimathea. Pilate says, what do you want? What are you doing here? What, what's your connection to all this? What does this Jesus mean to you? And for the first time in his life, Joseph of Arimathea says, he means everything to me. And I received his message a long time ago. I believe deep down in my heart that he is the son of God, the savior of the world. And I want to make sure he gets a proper burial. And there before God, Pilate, and the entire world, Joseph peeled the dead body of Jesus off the cross and in so doing, exposed his faith to the world. He says, I don't care what people think about me. I don't care what people say. I heard this message a long time ago. This message changed me on the inside, and it's time for me to come out of hiding and to start living. It's high time to do that. It's to start living the life that God has intended for us to live. For such a time as this. Father, take us back to the cross this morning, every one of us. That's where Joseph had a life-changing revelation. It was there. He watched everything unfold. He said, I can't do this anymore. I've got to give expression. I have got to speak what's on my heart. I can no longer keep it to myself. And I pray, Lord, as we pass by and bow our knee at the cross, because that's what you instructed us to do. Every time we receive the bread and the cup, you said, remember my death on the cross. Go back 
to that time, Lord, I pray that in these closing moments at the cross, we could surrender to you. That we could make fresh commitments to you. That we could do all the things that the grace of God tells us is possible for us. Everything, Lord. Do some work, Lord, in these closing moments, we pray. Amen. Let's take the bread and the cup together. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.